This episode of Eastern Promise is sponsored by Priors Croft Services, specialists in media, communication, and political engagement. To find out more, call 07712 402 435. And for more about the sponsorship opportunities on Eastern Promise, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. Space, the final frontier. These are the episodes of the podcast Eastern Promise. Its continuing mission to chronicle the very best of the East of England. To boldly spread news of our potential where no one has spread it before. Welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby, and thank you for joining me for episode 60 of Eastern Promise, the podcast that proves potential and opportunity in the east of England are out out of this world. This week... We're reaching for the stars, and I'm joined by Norfolk science fiction author Dr. Garrick Fincham. Garrick will be telling me about the inspiration behind his debut novel, Interchange, set among the remnants of a failed Mars colony. And as if that wasn't cosmic enough, I'll also bring you highlights from the launch of the Norfolk and Suffolk Space Cluster. And finally, it's Easter, making it a fine time to discover how the East of England spends high days and holidays in this week's Crowd Sorcery. The East of England has a long and noble tradition of nurturing and developing writing talent, whether in poetry, prose, or on the stage and screen. Think Kazuo Isaguru, Zadie Smith, P.D. James, Ian McEwan, Ruth Rendell, even Alfred Lord Tennyson, all products of our first-class creative hothouse. My guest this week, Dr. Garrick Fincham, has published his debut science fiction novel, Interchange. The book is set amidst the debris of a failed Mars colony and chronicles the desperation of its few remaining inhabitants. It's a tremendously assured debut, so much so that with Garrick's blessing, I've turned one of his short stories from the Interchange universe, Storm Damage, into a dramatised audiobook, read by me. You can find Storm Damage on the same Eastern Promise feed as this episode. Do give it a listen, but not until after the interview, recorded in the atrium of the Centrum Building on Norwich Research Park. We've got good coffee, good company, because I'm here with Dr Garrick Fincham of the UEA. We're in uh, the Centrum Building on the Norwich Research Park. Garrick, welcome to Eastern Promise, and you are part of the UEA uh, infrastructure. Just tell us quickly what you do for the UEA. We'll park that and get to why you're really here. 
Yeah, I'm just going to laugh at being part of the UEA infrastructure because I have worked for it for 17 years, so I do, I do feel like that many days. Um, well, I'm the Associate Director of Planning. Um, that isn't town planning or planning of anything particularly exciting, but it, it, it is a, a data-heavy job. And so what we do is create big statutory returns, um, sort of regulatory compliance thing, but excitingly, this year we're getting into data science and we're just launching a new team that you know is going to be doing some sort of pretty futuristic sounding work in in that sort of data space so we're looking at machine learning and at first some primitive ai which i think swings nicely into you know why why we're really here to talk i'm avoiding the word segue there yes <laughs> no no go for it let's segue but what we're here to talk about he pauses to let the lady pour the beans into the yeah, machine, that, which is vital war work. That's the, and we're that's not the, going to interrupt her. That's the good coffee coming. That's the good coffee on the way. Um, what you're really here to talk about is your novel. You're, yes. you, well, when I looked you up on Kindle, you were not, you know, I, I noticed there were a number of titles, most of which relating to archaeology, yeah. uh, which, which is, your, is what your doctorate's in. That's right. You, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us. I, I'm, I'm always loath to give the title because in case the interviewee says, um, no, but it's interchange. <laughs> it is indeed. It's interchange. It is interchange. So effectively, um, I wanted to bind together my day job and my past in archaeology. So really what that means is something to do with sort of data and AI in a nice sort of science fiction kind of way and rubble. Um, <laughs> and so um, the main setting of the novel, is a future Mars where, you know, instead of everything being spangly and shiny and Elon Musk-like, the colony has completely failed. Millions of people have died. And I don't know, it still seems on the Musk level. <laughs> well, could, could well be, couldn't it? Um, yes, maybe, maybe it's what the inside of Twitter feels like <laughs> yes. at the moment. Um, but the, um, allegedly, but the, um, you know, the main thrust of the novel is that you have a group of survivors that have clung on for over 100 years, scrabbling around, reusing stuff, um, living in the concrete ruins. But part of what's still there is this titanic digital infrastructure which has been fragmented but bits of it are kept going by um, windmills solar panels whatever um, and what that digital infrastructure was was a, a sort of massive communications and or project management uh, network and when the wind blows um, these occasional surviving cameras and projectors are showing images of the past population of Mars. So everything is sort of riddled with harmless ghosts. Um, you know, they're, they're engaged in the very tasks they were engaged in on, on the day the world ended. So you've got this sort of very sort of almost um, <clears throat> millennial, um, you know, in its classic sense, end of the world feeling to the whole thing. But as the novel progresses, um, you find that there are other ghosts which are much, much more dangerous and more entertaining. Um, and, you know, as the whole thing moves to a, a conclusion, you've got this interplay between AI, um, virtual reality, concrete, rubble, uh, and really desperation by the end. So that's sort of what the novel is, a, is about. Um, an attempt to do something a little bit different to the normal sort of Red Marsy type colonisation of Mars, 
um, and you know, through a few spills and thrills along the way. Mm. Would you classify it as hard sci-fi, hard essay? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of yeah, hard dystopian science fiction, um, very definitely. And you know, everything that happens in the book is based in either an extension of existing technology or I think an, exist, an extension of existing social trends until the point that those social trends can't be continued. And so the whole novel takes place not at the point of collapse, so it's not a sort of post-apocalypse uh, sort of <coughs> zombie survival. <laughs> um, it's a hundred years afterwards, and I thought yeah. that would be quite interesting because you know, in, in archaeology, really, what you you know, one of the f most fascinating periods in, say, you know, Roman Britain is is the years immediately post because you know what what's going on? How are people surviving in the in the rubble? So if you like, this is a sort of you know early Anglo-Saxons on Mars, you know, how do these people survive? They're called squatters, um, you know, squatter occupation traditionally in archaeology. You know, the people immediately post or, you know, a couple of hundred years post uh, uh, some terrible calamity um, when they're making do and society is beginning to rebuild in another form. So that's what you've caught here in the novel is that, that moment where the disaster is behind them. Um, there's a form of stability. Everybody's really fed up um, and, and, it, and it's time to rebuild and I think one of the key things about the book is that the, the main character Jude is um, she's trying to drag her people her tribe into a different future a different path but because they're surrounded by these vast all-encompassing amazingly impressive ruins and these fragments of a technology they can never match Everybody is psychologically overshadowed by this sort of overmighty past. And so the predominant feeling of sort of ennui and depression that many of them feel is because they look out the window and they see, you know, these awesome shells of what was once, you know, thriving civilization. And then nothing they can ever do and nothing they can ever achieve in their lifetimes, nothing they will ever see will be anywhere near um, what they can see reflected in these ruins and so how do you overcome that how do you how do you shift to a different path and say actually you know no okay this isn't going to be a civilization at its peak but we're going on to a new path a new start and and actually that's valuable in itself so there's a sort of whole sort of identity shift going on um which actually i think is quite you know one can draw analogies um you know if you're inventive enough between a novel, any novel, and almost any um, sort of <laughs> trend or subject. But there are sort of, you know, post-fossil fuel economy parallels. Um, you know, are we in a post-growth society? Um, I was listening to the radio this morning about, you know, the things that will probably have to go, you know, fast fashion, you know. You, you can't see me because you're, you're on the radio, but you'll know I'm already. I've already made the shift away from fast, fa fast fashion. No, never, never, never a devotee. Trendsetter, I think, rather than. <laughs> well, possibly you know. in possibly in the new world where we're all um, sort of living in secondhand clothes for uh, you know reloved, pre-loved clothes. Um, oh, forever. Um, um, I, you know, I've, I'm wearing my my, my best tweed uh, blazer this morning, and I'm describing this for the listener. And you know, it's the kind of thing where my mother would say. That's a nice jacket. Where did you get it? And if I said, um, oh, uh, Oxfam, her face would fall <laughs> faster than a Liz Truss mini budget. Um, uh, like, oh, Michael. 
but... Oh, um, you look very snappy in it, if I may well, say I so. Well, I thank you, sir. For, 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 thank the, you. for, the, for no, the audience. No, no consideration has changed hands. <laughs> this um, what fascinates me is... Uh, several things, actually, fascinate me, is, first of all, it's the idea of something benign, like a project management tool, essentially benign, essentially useful, that's kind of morphed and... Um, uh, taken on a significance far, far away from its initial p purpose and uh, conception and has ended up having a whole wider life uh, for good or ill. And, and the other thing I think is really interesting about what you've said is, were the parallels with archaeology always in your mind from the start? Or was that something that kind of you, you stopped and went, oh, I suddenly realised that I'm bringing in this whole wealth of my you know, experience into this? Mm. Or was that something you consciously planned? Um, it was always there. I, you know, I suppose I... You draw on yourself, and people say, don't they? Write about what you know. And I think that's a, 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 a phrase that's often misunderstood, um, because then people say, well, how could you write Lord of the Rings? Or how could you write Dune? But you draw on your own experience for these fantastical settings. And what I wanted to do was have something really rooted in what I know um, so that it could be as realistic and credible as possible. And an absolute passion of mine is world building. So I have read many books that frankly are spoiled by um, some pretty fundamental errors um, in, in you know, either geography or the way the world works. It just, it, it, you know, the lack of credibility suddenly pushes you out of the story. Um, and, you know, uh, sometimes that can be, sometimes that can be fun. Sometimes you just laugh at it. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a moment in, you know, the original Indiana Jones film where he digs into, you know, the first Egyptian temple. And there is no Egyptian temple that ever is that pristine. After the <laughs> thousands of years, it's sort of sat there. And so it's, it's unrealistic, but, you know, that's Indiana Jones, and that, you know, that, that, that's, that's its forte. But in something like a hard science fiction novel, you have to be, you know, as bang on as you can. And so the way things age, the way structures decay when they're abandoned, the way sand or dust will sort of build up, the way bits of technology may continue to work, all of that was as true to life as I could make it and was a... Was it there from the beginning? I think it was the beginning. I think I just had in my mind this awesome ruined Mars. And there were three or four goes before I really got the novel underway about what story I was going to set in that setting. So the setting was the, was the, was the passion at first. The other thing I'd say about that is uh, behind the book lies about four, five, six years of research into Mars itself. So, you know, attending lectures about you know, ancient lakes at the Natural History Museum, you know, reading endless wow. stuff, my family living and treading with Mars. Um, you know, my wife, I think, knows, you know, um, the Syria Plateau as well as I do. <laughs> and, it, and it, it you know, there it, it was a, every piece of geographical detail within the book is as accurate as I could make it. There's even a fantastic tool uh, free to use from NASA where what they've done is taken elevation maps of mm. Mars to help you plot or, you know, to plot rover journeys. Essentially, that's what they're using it for. They're using it to predict where the best places for a manned landing might be. But this is available to the public. So, you know, I plotted all of the journeys on the, you know, the, the, book, is a, the book is a road boot. So there are people who are moving vast distances, thousands of miles. Um, 
but in a sort of very, um, yeah, what's the word, remorseless way. So they're in these trucks that basically move at 50 miles an hour, um, <clears throat> 24 hours a day. Yeah. And you can cover a lot of distance in, in that, that, uh, that time. But the, the journeys they're on and the roads that have been laid out are all, you know, that, that they could all be constructed for real. Um, yeah. As far as I know and as far as, as far as I know, as far as NASA knows. Um, so there's, a, there's an awful depth of realism to it. Um, I just want to come back to the thing you said about the project management tool. You know, are, are project management tools ever benign? Um, I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose it's the use to which we put them. But the, the, the point about the project management tool, and again, it goes back to um, the realism and the depth of history. But the idea around the project management tool comes from the building of medieval cathedrals. So the building of medieval cathedrals takes generations. And I became, or took generations, and I became quite fascinated about the way in which you would extend a project over multiple lifetimes in the modern world and using digital technology um, to sort of communicate and edit out time lags in conversations between, say, Earth, Mars, Jupiter. But also you could effectively edit out um, generational time lags. So effectively what the project management system is, is a place where an individual, a professional individual that's needed for the project team, can be uploaded. Um, they are there as a simulation. Um, you can only be uploaded once, that's kind of one of the rules of the software, so that you don't get committees staffed with different versions of the entirely same person. Um, we can all imagine how fun that would be, I can imagine. That's a shame, I think Wishy um, Sunak would have, uh, <laughs> would have been calling uh, had that been uh, so, a possibility. So, so Boris Johnson certainly Boris would. Johnson certainly, but my word, what a committee that would have been. Um, so you, um, you, you come up with effectively an eternal project management team to give consistency over the length of a multi-generational project. And the project that's underway in this scenario is an interstellar vessel. So again, a lot of science fiction takes um, things like faster than light travel. Um, you know, okay, great idea, really good narrative plot device, but I set out thinking, well, actually, if you're not going to do it that if you are going to try and reach across the stars in a sublight way, the project to build that vessel would be much more like the scale of building a medieval cathedral um, or a medieval castle, sort of multi-generational uh, effort, um, than it would be, say, I don't know, you know, building the Starship Enterprise. So you, know, you begin to get a sense of the depth of history, but then also the scale of industrial effort, and that those two parameters begin to sort of ground the world in a real situation, which makes the whole thing hang together in a, in a for me anyway, a, a satisfyingly grim, <laughs> narratively, satisfyingly interesting, grim. narratively interesting <laughs> way. Let's talk about the craft, the craft of being a writer, because you've, uh, you, you've made me feel quite inadequate <laughs> with the depth of the research you've put in. Is there an extent to which, this is what I wanted to ask, this, mm. is there an extent to which the book has been basically fighting to get out of your head and onto, oh. uh, into a, 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 a form that others can share? Hell's bells, yeah. Um, I mean, multiple different versions. Days when you just think, oh, I, I hate this. I hate it. It's like a, it's a thing on your shoulder. That you mm. just, you know, it's a compulsion. And I think, um, you know, when I think about, you know, quite a choppy personal life, sort of family ill health, young daughters, two twins, um, you know, various different things occurring. 
all in the backdrop of this this book, which you know, under any normal circumstances, a rational individual would probably have put aside for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I kept at it on, on the sort of pretext that it was an escape, um, and, and actually it just became this Herculean <laughs> boulder to sort of push along. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, a real drive to, to get it out of my head. But the Martian monkey on your back. The Martian monkey on my back. But, you know, in terms of the, the craft and the research and all of that sort of stuff, I mean, because of my background, because of the sort of academic work I did, um, and actually because of the, the sort of technological stuff I do in the workplace, you've got all this sort of fuel sitting there. You've got a lot of the depth of research. I mean, I've been interested in Mars since, oh, I don't know, I first read War of the Worlds, I think, aged about nine. Um, so, you know, Mars is just one of those things that I think anybody remotely interested in space sort of looks up. The first thing you see is the moon. Probably the second thing you think about is Mars because it's, you know, the closest analogue we've got to a habitable world. Um, so those things were always there as sort of deep fuel. Um, but the actual craft of creating a, a world, I mean, that, that built up in layers over time. It's something you sort of snooze gently, you test things, but, oh, no, that doesn't quite work. And then what's strange um, is that there's a point where the thing takes on a life of its own. So, you know, there are a number of locations in the book. Um, and there's just a point where you think, you know what, that, that thing must happen in that place, or that place must be in that specific location, because I can no longer envisage changing the world. Mm. So the world in itself sort of solidifies, becomes real. You've got all of this sort of sociological, historical, archaeological, geological, geographical date sort of information that sort of locks the thing together. And so it, it, you, you then cannot change it. And that's a magic moment, because then you're not writing about a fictional place. Mm. You're writing about a place that's real, at least in my head. Um, and the same happens with characters. And so the, the, the plot almost is the third element to a novel. Um, but in my experience, world building, getting to know your characters and what are their sort of deep motivations, you know, those are the two things that gel. And then you set those in motion. And it is the interplay between those really thought through characters and a really thought through background that generates the plot. Um, and, and that's sort of the way I work. Other people doubtless work in different ways. Um, but it, it, the book almost writes itself at that point. But you've done the hard yards, getting to know those people, living with those people in yeah. your head, um, driving with them in the car, you know, it's a, you know, it becomes oh. quite an intense experience. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And is, do you have sort of plans um, for, uh, I'm just interested to ask this, uh, plans for sort of follow-ups? Hmm. And you, do you find yourself toying with plots in the future when you've, you've got sort of plots before there to solidify, mm. if that makes kind of mm, sense. Mm, it's, mm. it's like, um, I'm trying to think of a historical allegory, sort of, you're, work, you're working out how to, um, how to land the troops on D-Day as you're still loading them on back on the boats for Dunkirk yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, um, 
So I've, I've written since the early 1990s in a serious way, um, inspired by a, a long, semi-disastrous walk across the Lake District in which I almost drowned in an upland bog. I was backpacking at the time and I saved myself from drowning as my rucksack uh, waist strap snapped, shifted over the back of my head and I fell face first into a, a moss bog um, and um, you know I was on my own. So the only way I could think of of saving myself, I actually thought there was a moment where I thought this is it, they're going to find you with your feet sticking up in the air like a cartoon, stone cold dead in the middle of the Lake District. I rolled over onto my back, yeah, um, which of course saved my life but it did soak all of my camping equipment. Yeah. So there was a long and uncomfortable stretch in a peat soaked tent and I picked up a paperback in a local um, news agent in a place called Chapel Style and how this had made its way into this sort of turning wire rack I don't know but it was Desolation Road by Ian McDonald which is a book you'll, you'll not be surprised to learn was set on Mars oh, by the oh. time I got home I got a sort of nifty little short story uh, in my head which turned out to be the first piece of work I ever sold um, I, I wrote it in 1992 and didn't sell it to, for almost two decades later. So it was, you know, it was a long in fruition. But there's a number of short stories, nine short stories, um, that explore different backgrounds in a loose historical framework in three broad periods. There's a sort of human, still a time of humans, it's called, which is the sort of era in which interchange is set. And there are some short stories there that are in the, the same world these various different settings, not necessarily in the same world. I mean, I, I've arranged them chronologically as though, they're, as though they are historical. And that, those nine short stories sort of, um, are, are coming out in a book called Price of Starlight, probably in the Easter. Um, and that gives a good framework for future uh, novels and future sort of thinking around plots and stuff. Um, but I am halfway through writing a book which has been... Uh, quite challenging. Uh, its working title is The Haradath Assignment. It's going to be the first of a series of ten. Uh, it's really a commentary on advanced industrial capitalism and how it can go horribly wrong when competition is completely unfettered. Um, and the reason I found it challenging was because I had to invent an entirely new setting. So what I wanted to do was take a holiday from Mars, dis <laughs> distance myself from that world, and then face all of the sort of um, anxiety-inducing challenges of inventing an entirely new space with entirely new characters. Um, so why one does that, I don't know. I suspect it's a bit like, you know, um, maybe I shouldn't comment on, upon childbirth, but I, you know, I know from, I know, I know from uh, my wife, you know, the <clears throat> the second one, you know. We, we were lucky, we had two in the same go, we had twins. But you forget how agonising it all is, and then you go in for your second. Well, you know, it's a bit like that with novels, I suspect. You, know, you forget how absolutely miserable it is. But I've got through that. I've got through that, um, I've got through that stage, and I'm sort of halfway through writing the first draft. So, yeah, there's plenty of, um, plenty of stuff that's on, on the boil, um, and some of, it is, uh, some of it's well advanced. You know, some is sort of tucked away for future sort of thinking and there's a there's a there's a whole novel waiting really around AI and automated decision making and if I can just digress for a moment digress and, away and this this is really interesting territory because you think about classic AI and classic science fiction you know you, you, basically it's always 
you know, better than us, the robots are going to take over the world sort of thing. Um, that, I don't think, is the threat of AI at all. Mm. I think the threat of AI, AI will just be dumb programming. And what it does is it reaches a statistically likely answer on the basis of being able to run millions of scenarios. Mm -hmm. There's no intelligence there at all. But what's the effect then? And this is the interesting bit. What's the effect on human agency? Because if you consider a system that says, here is the outcome of a decision that you as a human need to make, and I, the machine, can predict the best decision to, say, 90, 95% accuracy. Who in their right mind would take a decision other than that that the mm. machine has told you? So this mute, unintelligent, vast scale, you know, sort of data and programming will rob us of agency. You know, it's, it's, you're back almost to that medieval argument, and there you could go again pulling the history <laughs> into it. But, but you know, the, the people of the past were not stupid, and they've been there in different forms in, in, in almost every human problem you can think of. But the medieval, the medieval argument about predestination, you know, if, if, if God knows all the time, do we have free will? Can we possibly have free will if the future is you know, fully predicted by God? Well, actually, the modern conundrum is, do we have free will if every decision is perfectly predictable and improved if we simply do what the machines tell us. If you link that to the Amazon five-star rating culture, where if you're commercially successful, you're writing something, I'm talking about books here, of course, um, you're writing something or producing something that's probably at its, you know, not, not the lowest common denominator, but, you know, you are writing something that's popularist, you're going to get the most number of reviews, and it's got to be quality popularist, as it were, so that you're getting the most volume of five-star reviews. That's the way you'll make money in that environment. If you're doing something a little groundbreaking, um, I mean, great examples, British new wave science fiction of the 1970s, J.G. Ballard, novels like High Rise, which were then turned yeah. into a fantastic film with um, Tom Hiddleston, mm -hmm. in a in a five-star popularist rating system, that book would never have been a commercial success. And so you combine the destruction of human agency through AI and machine learning with the destruction of the ability to culturally innovate through these five-star commercial pressures. Um, you've got a recipe for total stagnation until, you know, and here's the exciting plot point, something terrible happens. And I recently got interested in gurus. So how do gurus rise on the internet? How do people who talk frankly gibberish get thousands of followers? And so in a tightly controlled rationalist machine learning society, the thing that will break the mold is probably a guru, somebody who is irrational, someone who is able to mobilize the populace in some way that probably they shouldn't be mobilised for their own good. Um, but they do so out of sheer frustration uh, about being sort of trapped in this rationalist environment. So again, you get that tension between emotion, uh, rationality, mm -hmm. which again is a classic ancient uh, tension talked about by many authors through the centuries, and that's where your explosive 
you know, plot moment comes mm. from. Because, yeah, okay, the guru's going to shake the tree. But probably not for the good. <laughs> um, so how do you escape the fact that your rational world is really boring as hell? Um, probably delivering the best material results, but is going to be psychologically miserably unsatisfying. <laughs> so that, you know, there, you have a, there you have a plot. Are there many times, just drawing on your archaeological knowledge, that humanity has gone down a bit of a cul-de-sac, te technologically speaking, when they've produced something, not unlike the system you're describing us really eloquently and powerfully, how, how has, it, has that happened and how has humanity sort of course-corrected or have we course-corrected? Um, it's happened time and time and time again in big ways and small ways. So, you know, if you take the ancient world, which, you know, had been, uh, stable's the wrong word, but it had, it had existed in a cultural form. We're talking about the European ancient world here, Greece and Rome and its predecessors. Um, economy is based largely on slave labour. And again, this is, this is how economics, background, history, have an interplay with social structure, which gives you a credible background for a, for a, for a novel or, you know, uh, you know, you look back into the past and you see, well, how did one thing affect another? So an economy based on slave labour stifles innovation because labour, if you're fighting endless wars to expand the empire, is cheap and it's not worth the cost of innovating. As the empire slows down in, you know, sort of, 400s AD rather, um, what you get is the beginnings of innovation. So you get some really interesting attempts to mechanise and automate crude um, and then you know sort of factory production is kicking off in a way that we would recognise almost as uh, almost industrial. Um, and that society collapses uh, because really it can't make the transition quick enough. Again, that could be an analogue with decarbonisation, couldn't it? So, you know, we've got a limited amount of time. We keep being told that, um, you know, there are perils in not actually getting on and doing it. Um, and I think, just to, sorry to interrupt, mm. but that actually speaks to your earlier point about the gurus, in that there's a lot of uh, mileage, unfortunately, to be had for those people who are willing to say, stand up and say publicly what a lot of people particularly in the older generation, not to generalise, but here we go, I'm generalising anyway, um, uh, who basically don't want to hear that story, mm. Mm. who don't want to, who, out of guilt, out of fear, they want to be told, it's okay, do what you like, mm. you can continue to drive your big diesel car, you can continue to do X, you can continue to do Y, you know, this is all rubbish, we're fine. Those people, you know, I'm thinking of like Andrew Tate is a good yeah. example, who was rightly put in his box by <laughs> Greta, Greta Thunberg, um, in hilarious nine-word fashion. But it really speaks to that point, doesn't it? That um, those gurus emerge because they're telling people something they want to hear and don't want to do. Yeah, this is exactly it. And, um, you know, if you think about the current situation, um, well, backtrack a moment. I, I do have faith in humanity. I, mean, good, I, hope, I, hope that, I hope that comes through in, in the work. I have faith in our endless adaptability. Now, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for the environment, but 
uh, and the damage we're doing. It's more but for the community chest part. More, more for the community chest part. Um, but um, what you see when you reach these sort of inflection moments in history is that there is a system that has run out of steam. It collapses dramatically, as it must do, uh, to sort of clear the way for something new, and then something new emerges. The choice is not about whether or not there's a collapse. And indeed, you know, talking about classic sci-fi, anybody familiar with Asimov's foundation, you know, Harry Seldon's great words about saving the empire is, you know, you can't save the empire. What we can do is shorten the period of chaos when it mm. collapses. And that's what psychohistory is and the foundation of four. And, and that's, that's what we're dealing with. You can't head off the, in inverted commas, collapse of the way we live now. It's how painful do we make that transition? Um, and if you cling on to a dead model too long, you get end of the Roman Empire, um, you know, rather than a gentle transition. <coughs> just, just in terms of looking for those transitions, though, and, and looking for um, the sorts of trajectories technology takes. Like, you know, nobody gets the chance to go to the historic dockyard of Portsmouth again. Sorry, drawing on. Uh, Drawing on history, but you know, history and science fiction people often think they're strange bedfellows. You know, history and archaeology and classicist classics that's you know, a history of how stuff worked, that's a study of how stuff worked in the past. Science fiction, really good science fiction about how things might work in the future, you know, you are taking those old models and you're almost running different scenarios with them. So, to my mind, you know, you've got past history, history, history. And you've got future history. And so those two things are intimately interlinked um, at you know, points which I, I just can't understand how you would write science fiction without <laughs> a deep knowledge of history. But just going back to the Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, walk round in sequence the Mary Rose, HMS Victory, and HMS Warrior. And what you see is a sort of through deck cannoned warship, and they are all laid out in exactly the same way. Big open decks, rows of guns, an open deck so that the, the crew can sort of man those guns and swing them around and do what they've got to do. What you're seeing is an increase in scale, and then by the end, with so they're all, you know, they, 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 the Mary Rose is tiny, the warrior is huge. Um, and that growth in size, uh, right at the end, is permitted by industrial technology so you've got an iron steam driven warship that's laid out on exactly the same pattern and that pattern had been the same for hundreds of years just decades later mm -hmm. that whole paradigm yeah. of warship construction has gone and you're into something that looks more like a sort of world war ii sort of battleship you know world war one obviously yeah. dreadnoughts and and all of that but then that pattern of battleship of warship, you know, stays the same until the next big innovation. You know, we don't have warships that look like that anymore because, mm. you know, it, it's more about air power and sort of submarine power, so your critical capital ships are aircraft carriers. So if you're just looking at the evolution of that military technology, yeah. you see two inflection points. But, the, the, you know, the interesting thing about the warrior is how far we were prepared to push a really, really old model uh, constru of construction, a pattern of warship before we suddenly realized all of the um, advantages that were opened up by that new industrial technology 
and how we could completely re-envisage in a massive act of imagination uh, a kind of modern warship, you know, circa 1890-1900. If you apply that to digital technology, you know, those of us who are, you know, in our 40s, 50s, you know, I remember the first time a VHS video recorder entered the house and how amazing it was to <laughs> take a little clip of casualty with somebody going in and out of a... It's the first thing we ever recorded, uh, being put in and out of the back of an ambulance and being able to say, look, we can make him go in, we can reverse it and make him come out. Um, and endless fun just sitting there watching this little clip go zip, 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 as we played with the buttons. It was revolutionary. And we are still now in the exploitation phase of digital technology. And I think we're beginning to get the flavour of what a fully digital world would be like. But we're sort of at the, um, we're at the victory stage and we're not at the warrior stage. Yeah. So we will push digital technology to its absolute limits until it can go no further. And there will be such a moment. Mm. And then there will be a paradigm shift to something different. I mean, will it be biological technology? Are we talking sort of, you know, will um, sort of genetics take over as the next big paradigm and every computer will be sort of molecular and semi, you know, um, biological? Will it just be something we haven't thought of? And so you have those inflection points in technology, in society, in history, and, and those are the points where really good, you know, um, broad canvas stories, where you've got civilizational changing events happen. The spaces in between, which is sort of where my short stories sit, are where the world is relatively stable, but what you've got is great human dramas taking place against a sort of stable background, but shaped by that background. So I've got two quite different philosophies of writing, if you take my lead. We are, this is Eastern Promise, obviously, and, and uh, this is, uh, we are focused on the East of England, and we are, you are a member of staff at the UEA, which is one of the best known hubs for creative writing in the country. In terms of your craft as a writer, when did you decide you needed to bring in those sort of, I suppose you call them outside reviewers, peer reviewers, in, mm. in, 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 in a way, to, to take a look at what you'd written mm. and give you advice? I mean, and how did that... Because obviously there's, there's a difference between some, someone just jotting stuff down for fun and going to being a full published author, as mm. you are. Um, so what was that journey like? Um, that's a really interesting question. It was a lockdown journey, like so many, oh. of, these, so many of these things. Um, so I'd, I'd finished the book, um, and you know, you've put years and years of effort into this thing, and there comes a moment where you've got to let it go, and you've got to let it, let it go into the world, and you want the best for it. And I, you know, lockdown came. And I said to myself, right, okay, look, you're done now. Um, so I'd finished it, I got a draft ready to go, da da da. And then I sort of had a, a conversation with a friend of mine who works in a library down in Dorset, and he, he just got involved with a, a mentor, um, who, a, a, you know, a professional writer who's, you know, you're working with one to one. And so I just thought, well, do you know what? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do that. Um, you know, a couple of sessions with a mentor just to assure myself that, you know, it's as good as it can be. And so I got involved with the, got in contact with the National Writers Centre here in Norwich. Um, and, you know, 
quite strangely stupid of me actually not to have tapped into their resources much earlier. But I suppose I just wasn't in the right mind space. The book was still a sort of work in progress and I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of a full, fully published work. Um, anyway, I, through the National Writers' Centre, I ended up working with a lady called Catrice Scala. Um, absolutely fantastic. Um, herself a, uh, an author, um, you know, some experience. And so what we did then was work through, you know, chapter by chapter. We did, you know, a session a month. So it was only an hour a month. Sort of wasn't face-to-face -face contact, but you know what I mean, on, on uh, Zoom. Um, and I would send off a chunk of the work and she would give me back sort of advice and feedback. And then we would talk through that advice and feedback in a, in a session. And um, it, 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 it's like anything when you're writing a practical skill. Or listening to the radio this morning about how hard it is to sort of actually learn to knit, sew or do woodwork from a YouTube video. Ultimately, you need that person that's saying, little tweak there, little tweak there. And to be fair, you know, the, the changes that we sort of talk through to the book were not huge to implement, but the implications of them in terms of scale and style were immense. So little things like making sure that when you've written a scene, you are consistently within your... I'm tapping my temples now, I know people can't see that. Um, you're, consi you're consistently within the head of the character whose point of view you're writing from. And it's very easy just for a sentence to slip into a third-person description of something. And I had not even realised I was doing this, but then you go back and you pull that back, you pull it back to the point of view, and instead of saying, you know, there was a thing happening in the corner, you know, it's just something simple like, you know, he glanced out of the corner of his eyes at the thing that was happening in the corner. Yeah. Um, and it just makes the writing so much tighter, makes it so much more vivid, you know, it comes to life. And if there's a danger with the sort of um, stuff I like, you know, I love the world building, it's that you can be cramming loads of detail in that yes. really is not of interest to the character. And so that discipline of looking at everything through a character's eyes is a good internal discipline for me to sort of keep the thing taut. And as a result of that process, I cut probably about a fifth of the novel and really wow. tightened it up. Um, so there was, you know... Was that hard? Um, surprisingly not. I, I, as soon as it had clicked, you certainly. Oh. And what I could see was me writing for fun to expound on a bit of background that wasn't necessarily needed. Which you then just cut and paste, dump somewhere else, and you think, well, you know, like in due course, I'll write a guide to Mars or something just to keep myself, you know, the rough, the rough guide to rough Mars, um, just to keep myself entertained. Um, but yeah, once you've got that internal discipline, so Catry really helped me focus, sort of put some rules in place to, to sort of narrow the craft, as it were, and, and really just make a tighter narrative. I think you, because I, I presume you're talking about something that I've experienced, that you may have, you've, I, doubtless you've experienced too, is that you can say, the character went to pick up the newspaper, and then you decide you wanted to name the newspaper, and then you decided you, you're then you're work, working out in your head how much the newspaper would cost. 
And in this fictional world, is it a fictional currency? Well, what's a fictional currency? And how many um, grotsits to the watsits? And you know, who's, who's the editor? Who's on the editorial board? And before long, you're thinking, <laughs> you've wasted all this time when all you wanted your character to do was pick up a blinking newspaper. Um, I mean, there's, there's, I, I, I envy you because I remember I, I, just, I drew a sketch of a character from, from during lockdown again. I drew and, uh, a sketch of one of the minor characters from my own ideas and showed that to a friend after lockdown, obviously. And it was so difficult because was that how you, because I, you get immediately on the defensive thing, this can't be any good. Or did you have a much higher level of confidence in your work? I mean, how is that? I'm just interested in that first kind of <laughs> handing it over as if I don't be, it's like, being, oh. like, you know, putting one of your children on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. People can't see the face you've just pulled, which was one of sort of tremorously holding out, you know, a, a kind of notional piece of work with your face screwed up in anxiety. And, and that's exactly what it's like. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't think you get beyond that at, at any point with any given work, you are exposing it to the world for the first time. Now, the very first time you do it, you are shooting in the dark and you don't really know what rules you're going to be judged by. It's like sitting in an exam, that you, you know, you don't know the paper, you don't know the, you don't know the rules. So the idea actually that people can pick up a pen, write a wonderful novel and do so without professional input. I mean, in, in no other profession, you know, you wouldn't expect a heart surgeon just to be brilliant at heart surgery out of nowhere. Uh, I could think of one profession where that is very much the case. And it's Member of Parliament, <laughs> well, because there is very little training before you get the job, or very little mentoring. Perhaps you've got a sci-fi scenario there where you're not allowed into politics without intensive training, and would that be stultifying, or would it be, uh, you know, would it engender more quality and stability? I mean, there's there's, there's a need to actually get the job, but mm. getting the job and then doing the job are two different things. But we, 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 go, we go off on tangents here, uh, and I love a tangent, um, but um, what are your influences here in the region, I wanted to ask, because I know that going, I go places like Ickworth House mm. in Berries, near Berries St Edmunds is a, has been a very rich scene of inspiration for me. Where have you gone in our region that's kind of giving you that spark, that thinking, this is it, this is how it must feel, or this is mm. where you've sort of drawn it from wherever East, it comes. East Anglia is, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a native of uh, Birmingham originally, um, and then I grew up in the Dark Peak in Derbyshire, so East Anglia is very different to me, uh, to what I'm used to. And, but my PhD was uh, on the landscapes of Roman Finland, so I, I got very sort of intrigued by flatness um, and marshiness and that sort of liminal in-between worlds where you don't really know, you know, in a pre-industrial, pre-defined landscape you know, out in the fens, you don't really know where wetness ends and dry land begins, and so not so much on Mars. But in the novel that I'm writing now, um, The Haradath Assignment, um, I find myself writing about cold, chilly, icy marshland. And I go out quite regularly to places like Brancaster and, you know, or, you know, Stifke. And just that sense of landscape and how that landscape works. So, 
you know, the coast here is just amazing, particularly in bad weather. And I think that's one of the great shames about the coast. You know, people do tend to sort of say, well, that's a place for when it's sunny. My word, you know, there are things going on in that landscape and the way that landscape works and just oozes into your pores, actually, and, and your shoes. Um, when you're out there, that is just, you know, you spice it up. I mean, the, 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 I was writing something last night, actually, about the ecology of this moon, um, which is sort of wet and marshy and cold, which had once been a verdant tropical paradise and so is um, saturated with hydrocarbons. This, this stuff just bubbles out. So the, the plant life, as it retreats to a sort of cold, marshy environment, is really living off this sort of fossil fuel legacy. And so pretty much anything on this planet burns like a plastic carrier bag soaked in petrol full of fire lighters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you, you spice it up in that sort of way. Um, but the essential feel of a character sort of sludging their way through this. You know, the way you describe that, the way the character feels, write about what you know. So, you know, if you want your character to do that, you get out there on a wet day and you sludge around sort of fly marshes or something like that. And, you, you know, you, you come home buzzing with sci-fi inspiration. People might find that odd. Um, but you've got places, you've got just fantastic places like... Orford Ness. Um, oh, you know, now you're talking. You know, that's Mars. So I've got plenty yes, of photographs of Orford Ness. Is. You know, barren, rocky, rubble Have you everywhere. done the tour? I've done the tour. Um, absolutely. Don't step, there. Don't step over there. <laughs> Don't step over there. That's right. Don't, well, and that, there's that a sort kind of, of curious pretense that, you know, you might endanger nesting birds. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, or blow my foot off. Yes. Or wander we're, into we're, we're more concerned about the birds. More, I mean, yeah. Um, uh, you're right, and you, you go into the pagodas mm. and see these remnants of what was at the time mm. high technology just l rusting away. There is, there is Mars. You and know? there is Mars. The, the, in, the inspiration for you know, large parts of the capital city in the novel, um, which is, of course, you know, Sancho Rubble, um, a place called Big Junction, is Orford Ness. Um, but it's also, it, you know, the, the, it, there's always inspiration. I mean, there's, there's always something to look at if you open mm. your eyes. And I think, you know, I have been asked, you know, what's the most important thing about, you know, being, where does your inspiration come from? Well, it comes from the mundane. It comes from Anglia Square. I mean, you, you go and look at Anglia Square. Don't just walk past it going, that's a horrible carbon call. I can't wait till they knock it down. Stand in St. Botolph's car park. Look at it. Think about, if you're into sci-fi, or you have been into sci-fi, think about classic Isaac Asimov covers by Chris Foss and those strange, weird, asymmetrical, non-streamlined spaceships, which in illustration, um, I mean, they're common now, aren't they? Everything is, is like that. It's big, it's bulky, it sits out in space, you know, the, the Nostromo and its um, fuel thing that it's towing in Alien. Absolutely commonplace, ships that cannot land. Well, Chris Foss was the, the innovator. And you try and imagine Anglia Square in orbit, derelict, something unpleasant creeping through its corridors because it's an abandoned spacecraft. And suddenly you've got inspiration. Um, and the interesting thing about Chris Foss is he grew up on Jersey. And if anybody's been to Jersey, it is replete with Roman, not Roman, sorry, German um, defences yes. from the Second World War, you know, the Atlantic War. 
strange, weird, stark, fascinating, fascinating yeah. spaces. Almost steampunky. Almost way. steampunky or diesel punky or whatever. Yeah, but, but it has that sort of weird bower house. I mean, there's, there's a turret with three slits in it. Yes. Mean, but it's not really a turret. It's this amazing concrete cylinder. And he grew up there sketching those ruins. And, you know, he's quite clear that those wartime defences were then, you know, and bits of reinforced metal sticking out of them. Look at any of his illustrations in that period. And then there are artists that followed, uh, a guy called Tony Roberts, another one called Colin Hay. And they had these weird trailing bits of metal. And that's straight out of the Atlantic Wall. And so those kind of inspirations, you know, are scattered all over East Anglia. Um, you know, it took me a while to realise that during the Cold War, East Anglia was the absolute, um, you know, it was, it, it, it was the battlefront. Yes. Um, because you have got all of the nuclear installations here for launching our early missiles. You've got, um, there's, a, there's a particular site near Thetford, which was one of the two most secure sites in the country, open on open history days. It's now a light industrial estate but it was where the cause for the Blue Danube bombs, which were the first airdrop bombs that we developed, um, was, were taken out of the bombs and stored separately in what they call hutches. So there were rows and rows of these things that looked like little public toilets. Um, but then it's surrounded by this bomb assembly infrastructure and concrete this and concrete that, and blast shelters. And so you've got that dystopian, weird, fenced-off, zone out of sight and out of mind of people living normal lives. You've got the air base, the air museum near the um, airport here. Yeah. This terrible Armageddon that was being prepared right next door to normal life. So you've always got in East Anglia that curious, there's always juxtaposition in East Anglia. There's wet versus dry, there's kind of abandoned and rotting versus what's in you know plain sight there's armageddon versus I mean, yeah, daily life you, 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 amazing pillboxes everywhere pillboxes I everywhere mean, um i remember walking down the canal with uh, jack weaver of the greater thetford partnership in in thetford a place you mentioned that is actually replete with history of, of many many uh centuries and we walked, walked past these in these pointed out a pillbox on the side of the canal he said Took me ages to spot that, and we sort of stood and looked at it. And he said, "Then he said, which was kind of the point, I suppose." <laughs> and so there's there's so much inspiration. Orfordness again, what a fantastic place mm. for inspiration. Who inspires you? Whose writing inspires you? Uh, that that is that's a journey, um, and you know I'm currently uh, involved in setting up a well, it, it's up. Uh, I have a blog site where I am reviewing classic science fiction. Where do people um, find this blog site? People find that at garrickfincham.uk, so, you know, it, it, it's there. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm working through classic sci-fi that has meant a lot to me in the past. And at the, the website, or the, the part of the website that's the blog, is called Is It Canon? And... What I'm trying to get at is, you know, there's, there are books that you pick up in the moment and they're really good and you really love them and there's something about them that chimes with your state of mind or the time or whatever. And you come back to them 10 years later and they're rubbish. And you really, really <laughs> regret reopening them. 
Um, and there are others that you go back to every couple of years and just reread them because mm. they are fabulous. And that interplay between technology and society is really at its height for me in science fiction of the past, in the British New Wave. So you've got towering figures like Ballard, who I've mentioned already, but also Brian Aldiss, who mm. people don't realise, um, was born and grew up in the Norfolk market town of Deerham. Deerham, yes, and he's got a plaque he's got, there he's now, got a, he? He's got a plaque there. Good man. Now, he was one of the absolute towering figures of British New Wave. And, and just to fly the flag, and again, you know, this, as you said, this is Eastern Promise. It's a massive win for East Anglia. The um, British New Wave precedes American New Wave. So all of the sort of anti-war Vietnam-type novels like Joe Holderman's Forever War and all of those more challenging sort of bits of sci-fi, you know, Philip K. Dick and all of that, it emerges out of American New Wave, which is sparked by British New Wave. And, and what New Wave is, is the putting aside of science fiction tropes that evolved in the sort of pulp magazine world of the United States in the sort of 50s and, mm -hmm. you know, early 60s. Um, and you get this gear shift to a more psychologically serious, painful, dark uh, type science fiction. And Aldous is an absolute master of this. And if you want a really weird book, pick up Hot House, where he's actually telling the story. And this, this, this was one of the inspirations. And when I mentioned my book of short stories earlier, and I talked about, the, well, I mentioned the post-human epoch. You know, evolution isn't stopping we might like to think it is but it never does mm -hmm. and so what Aldous is doing in Hothouse is taking a world which is globally superheated plants have sort of taken over and mankind has been reduced to this sort of small monkey-like <laughs> species with vestiges of intelligence and yet he manages to tell a story about one of these troops of monkeys um, absolutely incredible piece of work and really atmospheric um, I mean you know when talking about disaster and inflection points and you know the, the climate crisis you know the, we should be reaching for some of this stuff I mean again Ballard's drowned world which is prescient it tells the the story of one of the last inhabitants of um, London after the water level has risen <laughs> everything's underwater you sort of travel through this sort of swarming jungle that's overtaking the city by boat and the character finds himself slowly merging into that sort of beat, beat, beat of the jungle. So he's taking elements of Conrad's heart of darkness, he's taking sort of environmental concerns of the time and weaving this strange, powerful, progressively dehumanizing narrative about how, you know, we come from nature and we'll return to nature, yeah. whether we like it or not, you know, nature's coming for us. So you've got these, you know, so that, that new wave period, you know, those are, the, those are the real modern motivators for me. But as a child, you know, going back to Asimov, you know, okay, most of the characters look like they should be wearing gabardine mats and, you know, smoking pipes. That's how they, they come across. They come across as 1950s architect type of Americans. But the structures of society and the breadth of Asimov's imagination and his world building is unparalleled. I mean perhaps from June, you know, that, 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 that remains an absolute classic. Less easy to reread, so, you know, that's one mm. of the ones where I do dip into it, particularly the, the core trilogy, 
but I've never quite risked, and it feels like a risk to sort of reread the whole thing in, in one go. Um, and then I have to give a shout out to Stuart Cowley's Terran Trade Authority series of handbooks. So there are four, um, but the most powerful one I think is something called Space Rex. And the premise behind Stuart Cowley's books were to take out of copyright art, science fiction art, uh, all the stuff I love, you know, of Tom, uh, sorry, Tony um, Roberts and uh, Colin Hay that I was talking about earlier. Um, and take each picture and just give a little report on it. So the, the premise of the TTA handbooks is that, you know, the, the SpaceX yeah. ones is um, it's just a list of navigation risk reports. So you're not actually getting a story. You get a description of the accident that's led to this terrible wrecked spaceship or this terrible abandoned city that you see. Um, and what the perils are. Yeah. So it's quite reductive. So you believe you're basically bringing in a backstory to, you know. It's world building. It's it's like catalogue world building. You know, you go through. There's there's one space liners, which really is just telling you about the different space lines that exist. But what's beautiful about it, and what's beautiful about them about all of the TTA books, is he has an acute sense of history. So you don't just have a list of space lines. You have ones that have gone bankrupt for a particular reason, or you know, ones that got into you know, trouble or ones that have got bad safety record or whatever. So you've got all of that nuance and difference and shading in them, which really struck me as a child right between the eyes. I mean, I, I, I remember getting Space Rex for Christmas in 1980, and I still have the original copy <laughs> of Thumb It regularly. But when you go back to them as an adult, they've got a sophistication to them that probably wasn't necessary, but was clearly right in Stuart Cowley's mind. Yeah. Interchange is published digitally. Yep. And, bef and we'll, we'll talk about how people can find it in a minute. But does that, there's the sort of, there, there, I know people, people will, there, there are people who, who do love the printed word, the spine on the shelf. Mm. Does, does, is that something you want to see in the future, bearing, you know, should, when interchange is, 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 a, is a huge success, which <laughs> is and undoubtedly will be. Uh, and is, is that hard for it to exist only in a, in a, a digital media? <laughs> or is it something you think it's out there, it's in the world, and it's, it's living and breathing in, you know, I, I, I buy a lot of audio production manuals, you know, some mm. might say you need to actually read them. Um, and, but only in digital form, and it's it's still much easier, I find, to, to pick up the written word in a in, in in a physical form than it is to sort of flick through your tablet or your, your smartphone. Does that bother you, or is that something you want to see eventually? Or, well, you know, the 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 plan, you know, by which I mean, hopefully before Easter, um, is to have a hard copy version as well, and you know, it, it's. Published through Kindle, as you said, um, but one of the joys and dangers of the world in which we live is the speed of innovation and the sort of flexibility that that allows. So you can upload a manuscript. You know, you need the full wraparound cover. You need, you know, all of the, the sort of you know gutter settings. You start to think about that sort of layout of a of a of a physical book. You upload that manuscript and it's there available to be printed on demand. And so you order that book 
and it arrives physically printed somewhere by mm. Amazon. And that is a wonderful thing, but it's also a miserable thing because you, know, you are dismantling slowly but surely the big publishing houses. And this, this, this is a really critical point, actually, because there is something beautiful about the physical, yeah? Um, but the, the, in, to my view, the successful response of the publishing industry has been to produce ever more glorious um, special editions. So I have bookshelves groaning with things like the Mort d'Arthur or H.P. Lovecraft or even June, just in these nice, you know, mm. hitchhikers. All my favourites just you know, there <laughs> in these gorgeous books. Um, which I will often just take down, open, smell, uh, not quite lick, um, but, but just physically experience, read a bit, find my favourite passage, mark my favourite passage. But I've got all of those books on Kindle as well. Um, and so I don't... There was a debate about the end of the printed word. I, I hope we're over that, because I think digital publishing is, a, is, a, is an extension to that. And there's just no doubt I mean, if you go to the works of, say, a great sci-fi artist from Sweden called Simon Stalhag, you know, he's probably the new Chris Foss, and again, he was someone I didn't uh, mention, but I have, uh, you know, I avidly collect his works. Um, you know, those are works of art with a narrative that strings the pictures together. Um, and you, why have that digitally? I mean, that, 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 that's a beautiful physical object. In terms of my own work, um, you get so much more flexibility, you know. As a, as a there, there are three types of authors, right? There, there's the there's the fully published, professional, gate kept, um, you know, agented, big publishing house author. And there's, there's something important we need to say about that in a moment. There is, as far as I can tell the equivalent of what used to be called vanity publishing, where you are effectively an indie-published author, but you pay 500 to to £1,000 to have it put out through a minor press that has no marketing budget. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be disparaging to those presses at all, but I think there are a lot of organisations out there that probably aren't giving value for money. And then you have the true indie author and I'm one of those yep. right? unashamedly mm -hmm. and I, that was a journey but I did it only after I had had the book passed through the professional scrutiny of mentoring because otherwise it would have just felt like an easy cop out but there are so many commercial barriers in the way to traditional publishing and you know one of them and this is a sensitive subject right and I have to, I have to uh, be careful that I choose my words, right? Don't want to be uh, controversial. But there is a massive issue of diversity within science fiction. Although, you know, historically there has been, right? It, it's, it's white, middle-aged, white men like me. And writing, me. And, and you, yes, indeed. Writing. And so the, the mainstream publishers, when they look to what they how they respond to the massive explosion of digitally available work, I think have made a decision 
to go for high profile authors that they can also sell on the diversity agenda. Mm -hmm. Now that does not uh, critique the quality of the work that's coming out at all. I mean, you know, you, you, I, there's just been, it's, it's a golden age actually of science fiction. So you've got people like Anne Leckie writing Ancillary Justice, you've got Cameron Hurley writing the Beldam Apocrypha, you have got um, Arcady Martin writing, you know, um, a memory called Empire and the series that follows from that. Just fantastic stuff. But the, the professional um, publishing houses and the agent structure and the editorial structure is focusing on stuff that's brilliant but has a diversity edge. So, you, you know, you look at that, that's the way the world is. I think that's perfectly fair given the amount of stuff that's out there by white middle-aged men. Uh, but you think, well, did white middle-aged men who tend now to be underrepresented with those publishing houses at this point in time, where did they go? Did they stop writing? Well, no, they went on the internet. And then you discover quite a terrifyingly bizarre mixed world, you know, like any other, where you have got the extremes of... Um, what I find personally uncomfortable American military science fiction. Red in tooth, claw and, you know, <coughs> alleged prejudice. Um, They've basically watched Star Starship Troopers and not quite understood it. Eggs, you said much more eloquently than I, I could indeed. Yes, the, the ones that have missed the point of Starship Troopers through to some really sophisticated stuff. And so I made the decision, actually, to be a fully-fledged indie author, dive in with both feet. And then you have to face being a small business, yeah? Uh. Um, and, and, and that's the place where I am. So I made the decision with a well-prepped manuscript exactly a year ago. So I'm up at my parents, up in Cumbria, reading um, a how-to-do-it indie author book that I bought on Kindle um, over Christmas and thought, you know what? I, I can do this, and there are there are many skills that you have to learn. So you have to learn, you know, setting up a website. You have to learn how to create a subscriber list with newsletters and all the rest of it. You have to be able to source professional covers, which I've done from a fantastic guy um, called Tegi Maskin in Norway. Um, you have to be able to source editorial services. You then have to be able to do the production and marketing. So there's sort of many sort of hats you have to wear as a as a proper sort of fully fledged indie author, particularly if you want to do more than one book, which I you know I already am doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to start thinking about things like production lines and think, well, what's my writing method? And without losing any of its integrity. How can I make the process more efficient? And so you start getting into spreadsheets and project management tools and oh. all, all the rest of it to try and simplify it. Um, and then I'm in the process of smartening up some of those tools and, you know, I'll make them available on the internet for other, you know, there's plenty of how to do it stuff out there, by the way. You don't, don't need to come to me. But, but, you know, I think there are some practical tools that I can add to, to the mix. Um, so it's a, you know, it, that's how I, that's how I get to Kindle. Um, 
Kindle, the big problem is, you know, but it's also the, the, the strength, is the lack of gatekeeper. So, you know, as an author, with something that you think is good, something that, to be fair, you know, other um, sort of acclaimed individuals have read and, you know, described as a page turner by somebody other than me or my mum. You know, my, my mentor was extremely, you know, you must go for this. You know, you're going to make this. This is, this is, this is great. You know, so I, you know, I got a lot of validation from my mentor. Which comes back to your point, earlier point about confidence. But, you know, once you've got the thing out and you know it's good, how do you close that air gap between you and the potential audience? How do you make yourself stand out? I think I read somewhere that there was 128,000 books published in the UK alone on Kindle last year. How on earth do you get any visibility in that environment? So the freedom to publish anything has sort of swamped that marketplace. And so, you know, you find yourself um, thinking, well, you know, I need reviews. How do I get reviews? Um, you know, well, there's no way of gaming that system. You have to get your book out. You have to, you know, and it takes time for people to read them. And you don't have the budget that a publishing house might have to sort of give it out loads of review copies and have 50 great reviews ready to go on day one. So, you, you know, that's the battle. And I think the only magic ingredient is time and persistence. And so I have said to myself, no matter what the internal psychological ups and downs, and we all have those days where we think, why the hell am I doing this on top of a day job? Um, is to commit to myself to write this next series. Um, you know, the overarching title of this is Industrial Constructs. So you get a bit of a sense of the, the flavour of that there. It's not going to be nice. Uh, it's not going to be a cosy world. Um, no Sylvanian families here. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've sort of committed to myself, it's almost a contract, I've got a contract with myself to write a 10 book series. Um, and, and that's what I'm in the process of, of doing. Contract with myself, that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. If people want to find Interchange, and I'm, I have to say, I am absolutely thrilled to be working with you on turning, uh, starting with one of your short stories, into an audiobook written out and uh, dramatised. But if people want to find Interchange, they can go to that well-known river-based um, <laughs> e-commerce site. That... I'm, I'm afraid so. So having, having sort of preached about the dangers of big tech and decision-making, we're all victims of it. So, yeah, Amazon, you know, Garrick Fincham, I'm there. Interchange, you'll find it. Uh, after some strange books about knitting, I think, in the States. Uh, hey. I'm quite, quite sure. And those from are, one to the other. Those um, are um, and that is... That is a perfect place to go find it. And please read it because it's a, it's, it's a fantastic piece of world building. It is so replete. You can feel the dust in your fingers as you, as you read it. Um, just going to end with a, a bit of a quick fire fun, which I like to do. Uh, Tim Robinson and Techies was very game for this, so hopefully you will be, will be Absolutely. too. Absolutely. We'll start, easy one. Your guiltiest sci-fi pleasure. <laughs> one that you kind of shudder to admit to, but you're going to. For us. <laughs> oh God! Anything with a pulpy cover, um, you know, sort of nineteen fifties, utter terrible schlock. You know, they the, came from Dimension well, Z. 
anything with a letter in it, can dark continuum, uh, X, you know, anything like that. It doesn't really matter what the title is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> You kind of, yes, you sort of like... Mm -hmm. Invasion of the Women from Venus. Yeah, <laughs> You know, who couldn't read that? I was going to say, come on. You, 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 uh, just, just, just say, very, very briefly, you, 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 I, your, your fascination with Mars, Mars very much with Jupiter, but no love for Venus? Um, I think Mars was just where I sort of lighted first, and I think you've got... Well, it's a lot easier to be on Mars than it is on Venus. Well, yeah, but... but the Russians you know, managed as, it for ten minutes. As we, as, you know, as we get further into sort of exploration and the wonderful work that, you know, frankly, you know, NASA and, you know, the ESA is doing, you know, Venus... But the moon, I think the moon is being overlooked a little bit. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got Artemis by... Um, Andy Weir, but you know, there's 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 a lot of stuff to come. Well, they actually read yesterday. They're they're actually panicking now that the Chinese are get basically going to yep. yeah, nick yep. the moon. Yeah, yeah, nothing um, like a bit of political let's, tension. Let's oh yes, yes, so, fun fives. Um, James T. Kirk or Captain Picard or Admiral Janeway, if you're of a if you're of a mind. Oh, Picard. I think. <laughs> um, only because of the Sir Pat. Only, only because of the actor. I mean, for, for preference, I'd be sitting there watching classic SF. I think you know, plot, uh -huh. classic Star Trek plots over over special effects mm -hmm. any day. Um, your favourite American SF? Um, Isaac Asimov, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And is there? What's the? Yeah. Oh. I don't want to go too far down the down the sci-fi rabbit hole. So, so um, Millennium Falcon or the Starship Enterprise? Oh, Millennium Falcon every day. Thank you very Held much. Held together by chewing gum and, pla <laughs> yes. and sticking plasters. Real, real. A thing that yeah. you know, a thing that's real. And uh, Barbarella or Princess Leia? Oh dear, we're back to guilty pleasures, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, in terms of a strong leadership model, but you go where you will. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think I've probably given that one away. I? I mean, the character of Princess Leia is, is fantastic, but the sheer schlock of Barbarella is just out of this world, quite literally. <laughs> Have you watched um, the National Geographic series Mars? Um, I haven't, and there's a really good reason why. It's sort of there, saved. I'd reached the point, you know, where my essay was in. I had, I had written it, um, and the last thing I wanted was to find out at the last minute that, you know, I'd got a wind speed wrong or something. So, you know, I'm waiting for the, literally the dust to settle on Mars before I, I watch that one. Did you, what did you, the marsh in the book or the marsh in the film? Ooh, uh, both. Um, I think there is an unnecessary tension between books and films. Different um, media requiring different things. I mean, you know, you compare the book of High Rise with the film of High Rise. I mean, I enjoy both. Same with The Martian, um, you know. What's your, the worst sci-fi novel you've ever read and swore never to pick up again, but still own? But still own? Ah, oh, well, I've just had a clear out, so ah. if, I may, if I may have an exemption from that. OK, well, exempt um, the recent clear out. The, exempting the recent clear out. Oh, God, I, I can't remember the title, OK? But it was a book set in a dystopian Britain under a fascist dictatorship where a journalist was about to sort of come nastily unstuck and it was such a hackneyed rip-off of you know 
any of those stories. There was nothing original in it at all. It was a tendentious political diatribe. Nothing I disagreed with, you know. He was a, it was a good, solid journalist, this fella. He, you know, be clear whose side I was on there. But it was so crudely done that I got about, I don't know, a chapter in, and I just gave up. I just, I just couldn't bear it. That's very unusual for me. I'll read any old rubbish usually. Last one. The book you've wanted to read for a long time got mired by, by life, by length of the book, but yet forced yourself to finish. Not because you were particularly enjoying it, but because you mm. didn't want to not finish it. Mm. Um, it'd be an odd one, really, because I'm going to say The Dark is Rising, which is a kid's book. Um, I, I, if you had that sort of 70s comprehensive school education as I did, you know, you, you were sort of split into groups and your friends were always reading more interesting books than you were. And, you know, you know, we, we, we were all reading Alan Garner and sort of great stuff like that. Um, the Owl Service, you know, was a great favourite. But I never got to read Dark is Rising. And I picked up The Dark is Rising um, last year over Christmas got halfway through life overwhelmed me a little bit and then I discovered that it was the second in a five book series and if there's anything more tragic for a, a sort of you know slightly on the spectrum nerd as I've been called many times you know you can't read the second book in a five book series and, and make that the first book you're reading can you <laughs> so I sort of ground to a halt and then sort of forced myself to finish it over the summer um, and then launched into a very merry Christmas this year by starting at book one, um, and now I'm on book four, <laughs> so I feel I feel like I've, I've com I'm completing the cycle. I've got one more book to go. And what's what? Just uh, one more before we think about it. what mm. is? I've just thought of this one. What's the sort of the big thing that everyone everyone out there love? Every, every sort of the like, franchise, you could say book series, whatever that you from the start have just sort of thought. I don't see it. I don't see it. That's a bit of a negative note, but and I might shift this one around. But well, the, the new Star Trek films, uh -huh. I just I just don't get it. I mean, particularly when you have got, you know, you know, and I'm, this this will be a, an odd thing for me to say, perhaps, and maybe a bit controversial. Um, but with some of the great things Disney are doing with Star Wars, you know, I think you know that's yeah. a franchise that's really steaming places, and then you've got this sort of weird thing that they're doing, buggering up Star Trek. Um, but then you've got, and I can't, you know, anybody who knows me listening to this will think, there's one big thing, there's one huge part of his life that he hasn't mentioned. So even though it's only vaguely relevant, I'm going to get in Doctor Who. Here of course. Because, Good man. you know, one of the things, one of the great influences, you know, Tom Baker, you know, so, you know, when you go back to those TTA handbooks, you yes. know, those little creepy background stories that they're putting, you know, every single one of them, you can imagine the TARDIS materialising in some shady corridor and Tom Baker stepping out. Um, but that's a franchise that's developing in a really interesting way. Ratings go up and down, as they always will. But, you know, I had a conversation over Christmas with a friend who was sort of panicking about Disney's sort of involvement in the budgeting. Um, but the upside of that, as long as they don't wreck it, and you know, Disney's treatment of Star Wars, I think, has been really, really good, is that you elevate something um, into 
the new and emerging world culture, which is sort of determined by the streaming services. And just going back to that sort of future looking thing for a moment, you know, we are we're in an age now where I think if things are established and are recognised now, then they won't drown in the milieu of stuff that's being produced and the endless sort of cheap movies on Netflix and what have you. And so actually, I think it's a really good move to plant that, you know, Gallifreyan standard uh, in the middle of Disney Plus. Well, absolutely. I mean, my own introduction to, to sci-fi was tar- Doctor Who Target, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, from the school library and then from uh, uh, Get Five for a Pound at uh, my local bookshop. So School library, uh, Invisible Enemy and The Demons. Ah, and that's, that, that's where you start. Dalek it? Invasion of Earth and Revenge yeah. of the Cybermen for yep. Dr. Garrick Fincham, what a pleasure it's been. A huge honour. And we look forward to seeing, you know, I, people are going to really enjoy this interview, I, I know, from just li- being part of it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Well, look, the, and the, all the, the best. The honours the honor's all mine. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I hope I haven't rambled on too much and I hope people enjoy it. Thank you very much. My huge thanks to Garrick. And not just for the interview, but because you... Yes, you can, for a limited time only, download and read Interchange by our very own Garrick Fincham for free. That's nothing. Zip. Niente. Bupkis. Zero. Simply go to Amazon and search for Interchange Garrick Fincham. I guarantee you won't need to type more than Interchange Ga and download a book that reviewers are calling Dystopian World Building at its Best and a quietly excellent piece of sci-fi. Now, please teleport your attention to the podcast feed and listen to Storm Damage, written by Garrick Fincham and adapted and read by yours truly. Here's a quick taste to whet your appetite. In the chamber, a crashing, rumbling chaos built in seconds to a deafening, screaming roar. Then, a smacking and slapping rose above that roar, but only for a moment before even that was swamped. Ground vibrating, a pressure wave racing through the chamber that the suits couldn't dampen. Fine grey dust, more like smoke, washed over them as their eardrums burst, just like the first time. Just like when she and Channa her head exploded, like it had six years before, and her face was suddenly slack, unmoving. A blood tear rolled down her cheek. My thanks to Garrick Fincham for letting me play in the Interchange Sandbox. Oh, hello. This is a gap between two Eastern Promise features that would be ideal for an advertisement. Because if you want to reach an audience of senior, director-level professionals, entrepreneurs, scientists, academics and creatives across the east of England, that's Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Essex, then Eastern Promise 
is in a class of its own. You don't need to have an advert made. I can help you with that. Or I can just read out text that you've prepared. To secure this space for four episodes of Eastern Promise, costs start at £25. To find out more, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. And now, back to our scheduled programming. Space is big. Really big. Infinitely big. It's also big business. The UK Space Agency projects that the global space market will grow from £270 billion to £490 billion by 2030. To ensure that the benefits of that market are felt here on Earth, the agency is putting funds into regional space hubs and clusters, supporting the technologies that can confirm the UK status as a science and technology superpower. That's why I was delighted to attend the launch of Space East, the UK's newest space cluster. With my trusty microphone in hand, I set out to secure proof that the east of England's horizons are truly galactic in scale. Jonathan Reynolds, chair of the New Anglia LEP Innovation Board, who spoke this morning. What a, a powerhouse, a tour de force of optimism, of potential, of positivity. And, you know, you must have really had your three-shredded week this morning, sir. Certainly have. It's, uh, it's really pleasing to be here today at BT Dashville Park, celebrating everything with it's really innovative about Norfolk and Suffolk. The companies that are with us today, the, the, the innovation hubs, the research centres, the universities, all talking about innovation, collaboration, and the whole theme of today is connected innovation. So it's breaking down barriers between our industrial sectors, really looking at cross-sector innovation, and really celebrating about the role that this region can play to drive the, the UK kind of science superpower ambitions. And we heard from Minister Freeman around the role that this region is playing already and can play, and the fact that we've just launched the new Norfolk and Suffolk space cluster under Space East is just another example of where this region is and where it's going in really being a catalyst for innovation. Tremendously exciting times. Uh, what, what a joy to be here at Dashville Park on a day like this. I mean, you knew all this was coming. We, 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 uh, we were slightly uh, on tenterhooks. So uh, how hard has it been to keep all this excitement under your hat for this long? We certainly knew this was in the planning. Um, the, the new yeah, innovation prospectus we've launched today, as well as the space cluster. It's always difficult to kind of keep these a secret, so it's not been a particularly well-kept secret, if we're <laughs> honest. But it is, it's great when we come together today and we put it all the, those component parts when we're looking at the role around energy, and we had you know, the ORE Catabol talking about the role of offshore wind and offshore renewables more broadly, the role of life sciences and agritech. We're now looking at you know, the role that CFAS, the Centre of Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, headquarters here in, in, in Suffolk, the role they're playing in stimulating aquaculture technology and a whole range of other really innovative solutions that's solving some of the big challenges around how we power the world, how we feed the world, how we connect the world, and it's a really exciting place to be here in the region. What has this uh, prospectus, this fantastic prospectus with a, a lovely shot of a lotus on the front, I must say, what, is, what does this unlock? What is, what is the message that you want those uh, accursed not to have been here today um, to take from that? What do you want uh, George Freeman's colleagues in, in Westminster and Whitehall 
to take from that when they get handed a copy. One of the key messages is just visibility and awareness of what's going on in Norfolk and Suffolk. One of the comments I made earlier as part of my opening speech was if we take all of our innovation research assets across Norfolk and Suffolk and put them and, and place them in, say, an urban centre the size or footprint of Manchester or Leeds, we would be on the international stage in a heartbeat. We would be very visible. We would have ministers and you know, politicians crawling over us. The challenge we've got is we have a very distributed region, a very diverse geography. And that makes visibility of some of our assets a bit more challenging. So how we can connect the dots, how we can really amplify those messages is absolutely key. So my message to everybody in this room today is start making some noise, celebrate what's going on in the region, talk to everybody that you know, all of your friends, family, business colleagues, any politicians you, can, you, you happen to you know, come across in your travels, shout, and, and, you know, shout that message loud and proud. Well, let's bottle that sentiment and, and get it, uh, get it uh, stocked in every supermarket. Jonathan Reynolds, it's, it's a pleasure. Not the last time we'll talk to you, but by any means. But thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Mike. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Kelly Boosie, Oxford Innovation. Hi, Mike. Hello. You've gone, you've gone into podcast mode as well now. That's fantastic. Uh, and we're also here with... Neil Griffin. And... Catherine White. All of Oxford Innovation. So this is, this is fantastic, quite the trio. Kelly, reflect for me quickly, and when you've stopped panicking, reflect for me on what you've heard this morning so far. Do you know, it's lovely to see some familiar faces in the east of England. Um, all the topics of conversation are still um, relevant and things we've been talking about for a little while, but it's nice to get everyone in a room together, I think. Um, so when Alex and Peter Brady were talking about funding and collaboration through co-working and innovation spaces we've got to keep connecting with each other in order to get the businesses to connect with each other so yeah it's been lovely to see so neil how do we gfdi um i think it's one of those things where peter and some of us were talking about collaboration so i think it's one of those things where yeah innovation is really important but that collaboration is really important as well to get things connected and get things done um, and then BT being the hub of that as well, I think it's really useful. So we're based across Suffolk and Norfolk, but also down in Essex. Yes. So I think it's kind of connecting up the ecosystems across the east, not just Norfolk and Suffolk, although we are at a Norfolk and Suffolk <laughs> LEP event. <laughs> are you going to be saying that a lot today? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. I like to it. Fantastic building. Uh, for those listening, go back and listen to, the, to Neil's interview on the podcast. Catherine, is this your, is your first first time in Norfolk and Suffolk, or are you are you no stranger to this kind of gathering? Uh, it's my first time at an innovation event for Norfolk Suffolk. I'm new to the Oxford Innovation team, and uh, but spent the last sort of four or five years down in Devon doing very similar work. So it's been very interesting for me to see the UK, uh, the Innovation Edge group that's representing this part of the coast. Um, interesting to sort of hear similar issues in terms of spread out rural communities in coastal areas, similar issues down in Devon and, and especially Cornwall. So um, be interesting to sort of look at how how that sort of program of connection and collaboration kind of comes through. Collaboration is so important and a fantastic example of it here, Oxford Innovation Trio. Thank you so much. Uh, Will Davis from the Satellite Applications Catapult. What a fantastic gathering this is and uh, tell me what, what are you taking from this? Yeah, so I mean, it, it is a fantastic gathering and, and particularly what I'm taking from here is 
it's confirmation of, of a project that I've been working on with so many people in the region now for about a year is just as a region and particularly in the context of a coastal region which are actually the most important regions of the world there is so much latent skills capability uh, challenge problem solving capability and solutions and it's just great that to hear people talking about it and that message and that storyline started to be recognized and as a way of taking this this region forward for itself for the uk and for the rest of the world and there is such a rich opportunity uh, at the in the uh, the coastline of the east of england which is a the long coastline uh, pardon my pardon my language yeah. um uh, especially with renewable energy, I mean that must that must make a, a, a doubly uh, even, even for someone working for a satellite uh, satellite catapult a tremendously exciting opportunity. Yeah, I mean the the coastlines are, they're such a, a rich part of the whole world really, and renewable energy say is a key part of it. But it's a key part as well because aquaculture is there, maritime shipping is there, and the agriculture. What happens in the in the coastal agriculture is affected by what happens in the marine environment and vice versa so it's such a rich and dynamic environment well these things are created by momentum and momentum creates its own center of gravity and pulls people in if people are excited and they should be about what you've just what you've just uh, set out how do they get in touch where do they go to, to find out more well i think i mean if you can access the people here fantastic if, if it's a if it's a first base stop in the region i think new anglia lep are, are really on board with it but there's a whole range of organizations and institutions that you can get hold of um, who are all part of the much bigger picture in the exciting story we are here obviously you, you, are you are you are you talking today no unfortunately not one of my colleagues um paul faber from the satellite capital is a, is, is a truly inspiring force of nature will be on the stage later so can you give us a sneak preview about what he's going to say or has he kept it from you too i can't and and the thing about paul is he's so visionary and dynamic that he'll surprise everybody oh excellent well we look forward to that thank you very much thank you professor gerard parr of the university of east anglia a pleasure to see you here and a leading light in one of the most exciting schemes uh, that's coming out of the east of england uh, the seti project um what what uh, are you you are speaking this afternoon are you able to give us a, a very sneak preview of what you're going to uh, be talking about yeah well it's great to be here i mean part of the agenda i have is to talk about some of the international work we're doing some of the research that's feeding into international collaborations which very much map in to the east of england and particularly for this event today where we were launching space east where you start thinking about the role of wireless optical and satellite communications in providing services and support for a whole raft of applications, be it environment, health, transportation, supply chain. So, I mean, it's a very exciting time where you see the convergence of some of these technologies coming into play. Of course, this, uh, the Smart Immersion Technologies Institute initiative that we're planning uh, between Cambridge, Essex, UVA and BT is part of the local agenda, but it's very much feeding into the international global challenges that we all face. It, it is a tremendously exciting project that have, have sort of uh, really caught my uh, imagination the first time um, the uh, the Cambridge Norwich uh, Tech Corridor team raised it with me uh, many many uh, many moons ago. Um, are you able to give us a, an update on where that stands? Because I think there are lots of people very much willing it forward. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been putting together the proposition first, the, the technical business plan, if you like, uh, then looking at the, the economical appraisal 
linked to what SETI could bring, not just to the region in terms of research and innovation, but also to the business community. What would they get out of it? So that's a, a work in progress, if you like, because ultimately this is going to be a big ask of government uh, as part of the levelling up agenda. Uh, quite a bit of work to do, but we're, we're getting there in terms of putting together the plan. A, a big ask, but also an even bigger offer. For, for them, uh, the the amazing things that they can they can sort of showcase, you know, not not just your your, your hard work, but the you know the the, the regions offering uh, you know the, the world the first something that's unique and first in class. But an event like this makes you realise just the huge potential it has to feed into pretty much anything our, our region can do. Yeah, and I think as already been alluded to this morning in some of the presentations, it's the innovation ecosystem that already exists here. Uh, and the different clusters, many of them driven by the need for digital technology. And that's some of the aspirations that we have to bring this technology to bear and converge, not just for research, as I said, but also the skills pipeline. How does it feed into what industry actually needs? Well, uh, like many people, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what you're, you're going to say to us this afternoon on that international question. Professor Gerard Parr of the University of Anglia, thank you so much. The host with the most, Tim Robinson. Oh. What a fantastic day. What and hosted with a plum. What a great morning. Yeah. You, you look like you've had a great morning, but you're <laughs> glad it's, it's the, the afternoon. Well, yes. I mean, now we have the all-important lunch break for people to kind of uh, reflect on everything they've heard this morning, which has been a lot. I mean, we've had a it's space a sector launch, Space East. We've heard about, you know, massive opportunities around Freeport East. We've uh, kind of, I think, had it reiterated how important BT Industrial Park is to all that. And I'm just thinking from a sort of Tech East point of view, you know, how does this all really knit together? You know, and I think the answer is through collaboration. So it has been a good morning. That is the key word of the day. So uh, before I, I, I let you go to your volivants, um, yeah. what is that? What is uh, the X factor? What is the, the key to that building that collaboration going forwards? It's uh, people and ha people having a kind of shared, uh, I think, a sort of shared vision, an exciting vision that everybody buys into and where there's something that uh, there's a role for everyone to play in that. So what I mean by that is talk about collaboration and partnership and all of that. Stuff, and great words. But it's about everybody standing to gain rather than no one standing to lose. So I think what we need to do is just, is just, is just have the culture among you know, the business leaders, these different organizations, whether it's BT, Creative East, the Epicenter, universities, Innovate UK, so that everybody understands what each other do, respects that, and trusts each other to work together in partnerships, and then I think we'll be fine. Excellent. What a great message to, uh, to let you go to your uh, crisps and a wrap. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It is a wrap. It is a wrap. Stuart Catchpool, the Luke Skywalker, the Buzz Lightyear, <laughs> the Han Solo... Captain Kirk, whatever, whatever you'd like, yeah. of uh, the New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnership. Chief, space, Chief Space Cadet. Chief yeah. Space Cadet, yeah. Space Cluster Sector Manager. That's right. That's a technical term. Um, what an amazing morning, I ask you for the second time. What an amazing morning. What, what a, a responsibility on your shoulders, though? Well, I think, yes, there's a semblance of responsibility, but, but actually it's, um, it's a great privilege, I think, more than anything else. You've heard this morning about how we have so much existing capability here. We have a, a history of, of companies doing great things that are already in the space sector or potentially might be able to benefit from opportunities in the space sector. And I think that's, that's where the real excitement is. It's building on existing capabilities, 
building on existing technologies, existing know-hows, and taking that into the future and looking at the opportunities to bring it all together and how we can work together uh, to make Space East such a really vibrant, supportive uh, cluster. What, what I love about Space East is that it's a, fanta- it's a fantastic opportunity, it's absolutely right with potential, but it's also quite, if you forgive the phrase, grounded in, in, in a real practical aspect because you're not talking about building the next Cape Canaveral uh, at Great Yarmouth. You're not talking about, you know, building massive great big space shuttles at Hethel Innovation. What you are talking about is really achievable. Anyone who's at the Agritech Meet Space Tech event will know achievable goals, practical goals, but nonetheless really exciting, innovative and really with an opportunity to deliver for the region and the country and the world. Uh, ex- exactly that, yeah. So we're one, or we'll be one of an existing network of clusters around the UK, and I think it's really down to us now to develop primarily what our niche is, uh, what our main messaging and, and, and focus is, but also how we support everything else that falls in within that opportunity. So um, following some work from Astro Agency, we had a space strategy document created and that covers eight different sectors and gives a whole load of opportunities within each of those sectors. So A, it's brilliantly exciting, but B, it also means that we need to focus on, on those areas, how we can develop those areas, what the priority areas are, what our key messages is. I mean, obviously, we're stood here at Astral Park and it is the home of telecommunications and IT. You were with us over at Eastern where we talked about the, the agri-tech um, opportunities within space. We've got a fantastic energy coastline here with the offshore capabilities, Absolutely. nuclear with size well. We've got advanced manufacturing through Hethel Engineering and, and, uh, and our advanced manufacturing um, sector here and NAME and all of these great groups with existing networks. Now, those businesses within each of those networks and each of those organisations have an opportunity to tap into the space sector by nature of the work that they already do. So it's up to us to showcase those opportunities, make those links, connections, work with private sector, work with public sector, work with academia, the research base, um, NRP, for example. There's oodles of opportunities within bioscience and space. It's just we need to try and distill this down into what we can actually deliver to start off with because the the opportunity is just vast absolutely vast i mean people can't see this but you're like fizzing (laughs) the excitement coming off stuart is absolutely palpable and rightly so what's next this you've had this sort of saluted on its way by uh george freeman the science minister uh, the number two in his department in the department what's next well what's next is is uh actually distilling that strategy into a delivery plan it's uh, engaging with our steering group to uh, formalise the governance around the group. It's about promoting the group. It's about bringing businesses in, getting them involved, um, and then looking at what, what, what the opportunities are and, and basically developing the roadmap to, to, to deliver some, some outputs. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's the key focus. But I think you know, the first thing we need to do, is, as I just said, is to distill into exactly what is our, what is our narrative here. What, what is the key messaging? What do we focus on to, to kick this off with? So. Well, to be part of that journey, spaceeast.co.uk. That's where you go. That's where you can find out more. And that's where you'll be able to, as time progresses, sign up to be part of this truly exciting journey. Stuart, if I had a bottle of champagne, I would swing <laughs> it and splash it across your side there. Because best of luck to you. You carry the hopes of a, of a, of a region with you. Well done Pleasure. and congratulations. We will. Thank you. I was straight, I was don't know where I was going with that, but it was it was it was getting more and more progressively ridiculous. But thank you very much.
I'm really excited to see where Stuart and his crew take the good ship Space East. Eastern Promise is four square behind them, and my thanks to all those brave souls at Adastral Park who didn't flinch when they saw me advancing towards them with a microphone. And now... Springtime is the time of the bank holiday. Good Friday, Easter Monday, early and late May, plus one extra 2023 freebie, thanks to the coronation. Cheers, Casey! So, what do you do, and where in the east of England do you go on your state-mandated day off? A day trip to the coast? Or a trip to a hardware store of your choice for some DIY? Or just spend a lazy day in the garden? Let's find out in another Bank Holiday Bonanza from... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Let's make like the Easter Bunny and hop to it with some seasonal reflections from Clark Willis, MBE, Director and Trustee at Swallow Barnes Group. Thanks for the mention, Mike, and hope you and your family had a great Easter. Mine was driven on Easter Sunday with the service at St Peter's Yaxham, a few hours away from the hustle of daily life, quiet contemplation, and I always enjoy a good sing. So many people talk about mental well-being and right to do so. Can I suggest that you just chill and enjoy some real inspiration and calm? That's the real meaning of Easter, I'd suggest. Thank you, Clark. And we often forget the importance of slowing down for just a day or two and spending time with our families and in a reflective frame of mind, however you choose to find it. And not for nothing, St Peter's in Yaxham is the very church where my wife Sally and I got married. Truly, it's a small world, but I still wouldn't want to paint it. Laura Quelch of LQD Magic, meanwhile, is planning to make the most of the long weekend after being under the weather. She says, I'll be making up for it next weekend with a trip out for sure. You've put me in the mood for a garden centre trip. Laura sharing there my true garden centre allegiance, the cafes. Garden centres, they're weird places. Quite what novelty jam and jigsaws add to the horticultural experience, I don't quite know. Very much on the chill-out end of the spectrum is Rob Dodsworth, photographer at Brand Story Studio, who says, Cheers for the tag. But you're welcome, Rob. Who continues, I'm still in semi-holiday mode. A day-on-day-off kind of thing for the rest of the half-term. We're off to the Castle Museum today. Kids' activities and the shipwreck exhibition. We went to Cart Gap, Haysborough at the weekend. We'd love the beaches. Excellent choices all, and I hope the Dodsworth clan had fun. Once and future guest, Dr Samantha Fox, co-founder and director at the Youth STEM Award CIC, concurs. A trip to the coast, says Sam, is usually my top choice. Thank you again, Sam, and I look forward to hearing more from you alongside Dr Shannon Woodhouse of the Food and Farming Discovery Trust about the STEM village that you'll be able to find at this year's Royal Norfolk show very soon. And from one fellow director of a community interest company to another, genial gentleman of business Brian Bush, connector of people and organisations, solutionist, advocate. 
Easter was a walk on home beach, which was stunning. Under-18s football on Sunday, brackets, we won. And now in London, being a full-on tourist. Faves would always be a beach walk at Holcombe, Brancaster, Cove Hythe and now home. The dog doesn't really care which. Now to Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant, who had in mother-in-law for lunch. Uh, over for lunch. Few jobs in the garden, says Michelle. Some local walks and runs and still an Easter egg hunt in the garden for my little adults. Now, be honest, Michelle, how little were these adults, hmm? Do you know, my heart goes out to anyone who spent between four and five o'clock on Saturday afternoon frantically trying to track down any kind of egg-shaped confectionery. Uh, not saying I did that. I, I just feel for you. Yeah, that's all. Joining Rob Dodsworth as a new member of this circle of crowd sorcerers, thank you, is Debbie Timmins, expert in service improvement, audits, KPIs and facilities management. What I do on the bank holiday weekends, says Debbie, is mostly dependent on the weather. If it's good, maybe a beach day, walk or gardening. If it's not good, pub lunch, cleaning, reading a book. But my most favourite bank holiday weekends are visiting the kids. Uh, but probably not theirs. Debbie, thank you very much for sharing that. And we're sure the Timmins brood are always delighted to see you. But given the heavy emphasis on galaxies far, far away this week, it's only fair and right that we end with augmented reality architect and Jedi master, James Lee Burgess, who spent the long weekend at Star Wars Celebration Europe, waving his lightsaber at the villains panel, which apparently is neither a euphemism or, more importantly, a public order offence. More recent Star Wars films have named characters using anagrams of the actor's name, so perhaps James Lee Burgess should henceforth be known as Jedi Master Jumble C. Sagar. And it's appropriate that his lightsaber was green, as those will be the colour of many listeners' eyes on hearing him win the bank holiday weekend. No, I'm not getting into arguments about this. He's won. I'm declaring it now. And that's it for the 60th episode of Eastern Promise, brought to you in association with Prizecroft Services. My thanks to Dr. Garrick Fincham, to Stuart Catchpole and everyone at Adastral Park, and to Engineer 49. His skills will never be bettered, just remastered. And thank you to you. Thank you for listening and for wanting to know about the amazing stuff happening here in the east of England and sharing it with the world. If you want to share your Eastern Promise, email me at mike at easternpromise.site. Bye for now.